Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. This episode is part one of two. What you're about to hear is a recording of a live event. The Fireside Chat has become a staple of Leadership Under Fire, leadership development, and human performance resident programs. The conversation affords seasoned leaders the opportunity to candidly reflect on leadership lessons and human performance principles resulting from the many wins and losses they've experienced. In 2021, the LUF team decided to launch a virtual fireside chat series hosted by LUF senior man, Jim McNamara. LUF's first virtual fireside chat took place in New York City in early June and featured FDNY retired lieutenants, Danny Murphy and Dennis Gordon. Both leaders spent more than three decades serving and leading in the FDNY's busiest companies. In addition to possessing high levels of tactical expertise, both leaders were highly regarded for their calm demeanor and decisiveness at complex fires and emergencies where members were operating under considerable pressure. Both leaders were instrumental in the development of countless firefighters and young officers. Let's listen in. Ladies and gents, joining us from across the country this evening. Good evening. I'm just going to offer a very brief introduction. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Jay Bresler. I have the good fortune of being the founder of LUF. I'm guessing that many of you have been listening to the podcast now for you know a, a year or two. I've been very fortunate that Patty hosted, and more recently, Jimmy has stepped up in a more active role as the host from time to time. And uh, this is the first time we've we've done many fireside chats over the years. This is the first one we've done kind of in hybrid, blended fashion, where there's a group here present, and then there's also folks joining us uh, as we stream this conversation live to folks across the, the country. So we're pretty excited about this opportunity, and uh, credit to Gabe and Jemmy for having the idea, born during uh, COVID. So thank you. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, your host, Jim McNamara, who will take it from here. Uh, last thing, one administrative item. For those of you that are joining us remotely in virtual land, if you have any questions or comments or you seek to offer questions later in the conversation, please send those on uh, on Zoom. Without further ado, Jimmy, it's all yours. Thank you, Jay. Before we get started tonight, why don't we have each of uh, our guests tonight give a little background of uh, who they are and, and where they work during their careers. Hey, everybody. My name is Dennis Gordon. I retired in 2015. I did 37 years at the FDNY. I started in 1978, was appointed to 45 engine in the Bronx, transferred over to 38 truck. After about 10 years, I got promoted to lieutenant. In 1990, I was assigned to 120 truck, and I was there for 15 years. Then uh, I had an offer to go to SOC, and I tried that. I did two years in squad 18, and about five, six, or seven years in Rescue 4, and, and then I retired, at, like I said, 2015. I'd still be there if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, Dan Murphy. I got on in uh, January 1981. 
I was born in the Bronx. I lived in the Bronx when I was a kid. My dad was a Bronx fireman, and uh, he used all his favors making sure I went to Brooklyn. So <laughs> I got on, uh, <clears throat> I went to Engine 229. It was a fairly old engine company. The guys there were pretty old. Uh, one guy was in the company 20 years the day I was born. I said, so that wasn't, wasn't for me. We were in the battalion at 108, so when I had a year, I went down to 108 truck and I uh, worked there from 81 to 91. Then uh, I made the move, I went to Rescue 2 as a firefighter and I was there from 91 to 95. I got promoted in 95. I bounced around Brooklyn for a couple of years. I got a spot in Ladder 176. I was there for four years. And then after 9-11, they, uh, they asked me to go back to Rescue 2 because they had suffered so many losses. So I, I went back there and 15 years later, uh, I retired. I retired in 2016, a little over uh, 35 years, and I said the same thing. If I could, I could do it all over, I'd do it all over. Amen. Why don't we start from the beginning? How and why did you arrive in the FDNY? It was a childhood thing. Ever since I saw Emergency, Squad 51. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I always wanted to be a fireman. I wasn't, uh, I was very physical. I've been exposed to it as a kid. Like I said, I was like really physically active, but I wasn't into sports. I didn't like team sports, but I like competition. And um, I always saw being a fi fireman as a way to um, compete with yourself. Like I really liked uh, self-competition. In other words, like, like I said, I wasn't in team sports, but I was, I did, before I came on the job, I done, went to mountaineering school technical rock climbing, ice climbing, skydiving, you know, I was a distance runner. And to me, like firefighting, like I always like to just push myself to test um, myself and really at a job, you know, I mean, the ultimate competition is with yourself and it doesn't matter how anybody else does, you know, um, if you do better at your next fire, then you're doing better. It's not like a race with me versus Danny or something like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, as soon as I heard about the test, uh, I started working out for it. Crazy. I took it in 1977, and I actually got hired six weeks after my 21st birthday. So it was like, you know, it was very fortunate. And um, yeah, like I said, if I was physically capable of doing it, I would have stayed, you know, until they threw me out. <laughs> uh, but, you know, whatever. Men make plans and God laughs, you know? <laughs> Like I said, I was born in the Bronx. I, I lived by 80, 82 engine, and my dad was a fireman in 48 truck. And uh, the neighborhood started to burn. We went to the, we lived in the housing projects uh, down in Castle Hill. But uh, sometime before I was three, because I remember we moved when I was three, I remember going into the firehouse on uh, Seneca Avenue at 48, and that was it. I said, whatever it was, the smell, the sights, the guys were like superheroes. I had, I had no backup plan. It's all, all I wanted to do. And when I retired, I, I remember saying to the guys, uh, like how lucky we were that we made it to where we did. But did we also, I really did. I got to live out a childhood dream. Mm -hmm. You know, we mm -hmm. said you could be a football player, a Navy SEAL or anything, a movie star. You know, you're going to do it for a limited amount of time. But the fire department was from the from the day I was exposed to it. I says I had, I had no backup plan. It's it's all I ever wanted to do. That's fantastic. Very few people in life get yeah, to do exactly many. what they want. I don't take it for granted. No, no, I know Danny doesn't either. <laughs> no. So for both of you, 
You cut your teeth in some of the FDNY's most storied companies during an incredible period of time. Who were some of the firefighters and officers that you sought to emulate in the early years of your career? Well, you know, so when I got on, it was it was uh, shortly after the end of the Vietnam War. So I had a lot of, a lot of uh, Vietnam vets, and I actually even had um, one of my lieutenants was a World War II vet. This guy, Leo Fricazzi, who was a tank sergeant uh, under Patton. And um, so these guys, like what I saw was, um, like it was all about their demeanor, you know, um, and their composure. And like I didn't realize that being, like when I got there, everything was so calm and slow. Like that's not what I was expecting, you know. Um, like, I was expecting a lot of helter-skelter, you know, like you see on TV, the firemen running around and bells ringing and all that kind of stuff. And these guys just went about everything, you know, this is the Bronx anyway, you know, like, like everything was just, just um, ordinary. Like, they understood the immediacy of the moments and, and, you know, how dangerous it was, but it didn't affect um, how they acted. And, you know, that's, that's what I tried to emulate. I mean, as I went, my, was that thing, like, that was so important to me, was more um, not losing myself, you know, like not losing your, your shit. Um, and they didn't. And then, you know, the learning and everything else came after that. But I always felt like the most important thing first was, was your um, composure. Like, I think that if I had to put it all in one word, it's composure. They just made the extraordinary seem ordinary, these guys. And did that carry on when you became a boss? For me? Yeah. I did the best I could. You know, I, I took, when I become a lieutenant, this was like, this was my number one thing in my life, except, of course, for my son, you know, my family. But, but um, yeah, it was really important for me, beyond all else, to, to be that way. And, you know, I thought of those bosses. Like, I'd think of this guy, Leo Fricazzi. I mean, he was like this little roly-poly guy. Like, you wouldn't believe what he, you know, he'd tell me these stories about being in Germany during World War II. And he was just this little roly-poly Italian guy who lived on Arthur Avenue. You know, he'd lived there his whole life. And uh, he just, he just walked down, you know, it'd be like, fire out every window. It's raining babies. Everybody's screaming. And Leo, you know, his coat's open, and he's just walking, and he had the, that little Ocean Pro, whatever it was called, that flashlight with the blue rim and the, the, old, light. <laughs> the old light, yeah. you know, and he got everything got done, you know, and there was no screaming, no yelling, no confusion. Uh, he operated like, they always operated like gentlemen, you know, like, um, and if you, if you want me to go off like on a tangent there, you know, it was, it was just, um, you know, it was like culture shock when I went from the Bronx to Brooklyn. Because everybody was good at fires, but, but it was like, it was very different, uh, you know, in Brooklyn. But, you know, I'll get into that later. I think that's part of something sure. else. I, w I would say a lot of that is what Dennis said. I, it's the same thing. Like all the guys, I went to Brooklyn, but all my friends who went to the Bronx and Harlem, we all, we all had the same basic experience. And that was it in a word was the Vietnam vets were really, really cool. And there was some World War II vets around, like my dad was 57, and he was, he was a World War II vet, and the Korean guys in between. Uh, it, was, it was their demeanor, the way they conducted themselves. I said, like the one particular guy I talk about all the time, he was, uh, he was a tunnel rat in Vietnam. And so when you're 19 and you're crawling around in a rat-infested tunnel with a knife of 45 and a flashlight, fire out the top floor of a four-story frame, <laughs> 
just if they didn't phase them. And so that's why I would say that's the, the, the way when I was young, these guys were just really, they were really cool on the fire. I think we, Dennis and I talked all the time, and I think that when we came on the fire department, I think the fire department was possibly at its level best. It wasn't the busiest, the war years were really over. But if you had five years when, when we came on, you the guy got on in 1975 or a 10-year guy got on in 1970, a 15-year guy got on in 1965 when these neighborhoods were on fire. And then our physical, the one we took in 1977, was so competitive that it, it, nobody, nobody got 100 on it. It was, it was so difficult that... We had these older guys with all the experience and us young guys, you know, in our early 20s, just like sponges looking to learn. We're trying to keep up with them. They, we had 40-year-old guys lifting weights and, and you know, uh, outrunning, trying to keep up with us. And I just think at that time, the fire department was just really, really just hit its peak with the experience level that we had and then the young youth and enthusiasm that we had. I just think that the fire department was at its Yeah, at its I mean, best. we were working... I certainly, I think Danny was also guys as old as our fathers. Yeah. You know, right? Because yeah. I came on at 21, you know, and I mean, I remember walking in the kitchen and like this guy would give me like, he gave me like this Easter basket with jelly beans. And he goes, here, little boy, here's some candy, <laughs> you know, and, and then, and then like they go, whose son is riding here with us? Whose kid is this? <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they were old, man, but they were. <laughs> I didn't get jelly beans. <laughs> well, yeah. What percentage of the job do you think was uh, was military back then? I'd say half where I went. Where I'm, yeah, at least I, in I'd 45 maybe, and 58. Maybe even more. At least half. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of, Indo yeah, it seemed like everybody was in Vietnam there. Yeah. A lot of guys. We had a half a dozen combat Vietnam guys. There was one Green Beret Special Forces, the Tunnel Rat, you know, a couple of Marines. And then there was a couple of guys that were Vietnam era. Right. But they weren't considered Vietnam vets. The Korean guys and the, a couple of World War II guys. It, it, yeah. pro it was more Korean than guys too. We had a number of Korean guys. That's right. Yeah, it was. It was probably more than half. We yeah. have about fourteen hundred on the job now. That's ten uh, percent. They're absolutely amazing. Less than ten. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I would be remiss if we didn't talk about. Uh, you've often spoken about Harry Ford. Yeah, Harry wasn't a military was guy, but Harry, <clears throat> Harry was. Uh, we were arguing about this the other night. Me and my old crew. Uh, I tell guys this, and I told guys this before Harry died. I, Harry Ford was, I thought Harry Ford was the best fireman I ever worked with. Pure fireman. I mean, Rescue 2 is, uh, you know, there's a lot of certainly tough firemen, but the outside vent, the, the, the roof position, the, the chauffeur, you know, coordinating all of those. Harry got on in 74, told us. He got on in 74, he got laid off in 75. And then he came back and he went to 108. So, like, from 76 to when I got there, he was in 108, say, about five years. He says he went to more fires in 11 truck in 1974 than in five years in 108 when they were, when they were doing well. 28, 28 engine was first, first engine in the city, number one engine in the city. They had 20 first two boxes. Wow. And it says the, the nearest firehouse they could, they could see from there, the firehouse. It was, it was unbelievable. But Harry was the type, type of guy. I mean, you talk about, like, really – like tremendous football players. It's just, you know, the s speed and the strength is one thing. But I I will still defend that his instincts, his instincts were better than anybody's that I ever worked with. He was super cool on the fire. He was big, big and strong. But uh, I think his instincts 
were, uh, were the best that I ever I had ever seen. Can you develop this, or are you simply born with it? I don't. I don't really know, honestly. I don't Developed know. instinct. I think he whatever I qualities so. he had. I think he was were more in, inborn with him. Like he was he was a natural, like just a natural leader, take charge guy, and no matter what, he he always seemed to be he'd be in the right position, no matter what. I I don't know that you can. He was he was an exceptional guy. I don't know that you can train. Anybody, no less everybody, to be like that. I, I don't think that you can. But think, there's certain uh, things you can you can emulate. Well, I think everybody has instinct. It's a matter if they know how to listen to it and if they've had a chance to develop it. Like, I mean, what's instinct? Is it like some sort of, you know, space, new age, uh, alien type of, you know, energy? Or is it like science? I well, mean, I mean, it's firefighting instinct. Yeah, no, no, no. Like I'm saying, like, as a firefighter, for example, like, you know, what happens with instinct, right? You get a feeling. I go this way. Which way do I go, left or right, right? You get an instinct that tells you which way to go or tells you to leave, right? Where does that come from, right? I believe it's scientific that it's all this information you've collected through experience, right? Like, and I don't think a new fireman could have instinct. And I don't think you can consciously go and develop it, but, but you have to listen. But the thing is, as you build, you know, all these experiences up and all this memory... And, you know, I've done a lot of reading about this stuff, too. And it's, it's like you can tap into that sort of unconscious part. Like you are, actually. It's like a survival thing. And, and you know, you, I don't know the names of the parts of the brain. I think you guys know all this. And which cells and the hypothalamus and the hippocampus. And I don't know that from my, you know. But, but, uh, but I understand the principles, you know. And, um, yeah, it's just a matter of as a survival thing and you're under stress, you're tapping into that information, you're pulling it out and you're not getting it like in a very clear message like you must go this way, but you get a feeling and that's the way your body alerts you. And, and this is what I, I feel happens and it's a matter of not ignoring it, like not letting your thinking take over your feeling, right? Right? Like there's two things going on at a fire, your thinking and your feeling. And you got to know which time what's more important. Right? Do I listen to my head or my heart? You know, I mean that—that's, you know, that was my thing. It didn't always work, because my ego got in the way of all of it. And then I, because I knew what was supposed to be, and sometimes I was wrong. <laughs> when you talk about intuition, Dr. Gary Klein has done work, and he did actual uh, work with firefighters back in the '70s about intuition, especially about chiefs when to make the call, when to, you know, when to pull pull the guys out of it. Um, intuition based upon your understanding and your experiences and it, it, you're absolutely right when you talk about a young firefighter doesn't have that base of knowledge those slide decks that you have uh would you like to add something to more yeah i think some of it, it comes with your, your confidence too mm -hmm. and uh like when you're uh you know I, I had over 20 years and i was still in in the in the truck and we had a vacant building was a really shitty building we weren't even drilling it anymore and uh, he says, I called outside operation 120. was there, I called for a towel ladder. Chief came in, he was happy. The deputy came in, he was happy. And some guy with five hours on the fire department comes up to me after me. He goes, you know, uh, Lou, I, I, I think we could have done this. I go, do you? I said, you, you, you think we could have done it? He says, well, my OV went around the back as the back of the building fell off. You know, so I says, we figured, you know, like, get away from me. But <clears throat> who was that? Oh, is a, a guy from a, a relocated <laughs> engine. But what I'm saying is that at that point, I had enough time 
that I had confidence that I wasn't worried that, hey, what do they say? It's, it's, it's easy to go. It's e it's, uh, the hard thing is when you know not to go. That I had enough, I had enough time and I had enough confidence in myself that I wasn't worried what this guy thought. But I think that could be a problem for a younger officer when you say, hey, you know, these guys, they're going to think I'm, uh, I'm a coward if, if we don't go. When you're saying, hey, you know, it comes with, it comes with some, some time. Ego. How long did it take for each of you to feel confident on the fire ground? 100%. Well, you never get it 100%. Never felt 100%. But when you start to felt, yeah, I think I'm beginning to get this. Well, like as an officer? Or? A fire, fire, and an officer. Just in general, like time yeah. on the job-wise? Um, let me think about... I would say, for me, somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Like, really, like, I felt like I knew what, what was going on. Like, I really understood. I mean, to be honest. The thing like that really, clouds it is... The big picture. At certain times, there's like a certain, like when you get promoted, they tell you, the probies are never going to give you a problem. The 20-year guys are never going to give you a problem. It's, it's those, those guys in uh, like the four to eight year, they're looking to flex their muscles where they think that they know more than they do. So because I think it does. It's just confidence. It just comes with time, you know, and experience. You know, when you, you go to enough, enough fires where, you know, things, things work out well and you, you start to get, a little more confidence, but I always, I always talk about that, that balance that that you have to have confidence. But then when it goes into ego, that's how many guys you know sunk them, you know, because of their ego. Yep. So it's it's just kind of having having confidence in yourself, but without without being like a horn blower or you know thinking thinking who you are. Because we, I know, I know we're going to talk about this today. The day you have confidence and you think that you're kind of all of that that's when you get your you're going to get your head handed to you and you're going to get humbled you know so i don't know that i ever really really ever felt like you know completely confident sure i put the question to al hagan uh, when he was in 36 engine how long did he and he said well he said he had a he had he had a job for 17 straight tours and he said he felt pretty good after that mm -hmm. uh, it, it's these numbers are almost incalculable to guys today, uh, which is why your insights are so valuable for them to hear this. So let's move on to our next question. You decided at some point you wanted to serve as a leader in a formal sense. What was the impetus for your decision to study and promote? I just wanted to keep evolving. You know, um, I mean, I, and I wanted to be a leader. I mean, I felt like I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to be a decision maker. I wanted to push myself, um, and I just felt it was a natural progression. You know, I mean, where else are you going to, you know, I felt like well, I could stay here as a fireman and be the best, you know, OV for the next 30 years, or, or I can get out there because, you know, it's a big job, right? I mean, we have a big job, and I wanted to see it. I wanted to go to other boroughs. I wanted to work into other, you know, work in other places. I wanted the whole experience, you know, and... Uh, yeah, and you know the money didn't hurt either. I mean, we weren't making a lot of money when I got promoted. I could tell you that. No. I don't know. I'd like to say that I had this noble thought of being a leader, really, but I remember just humping that rabbit tool up the stairs, saying, "Oh man, the twenty-five pound one. I'm not gonna be doing this." I'm, I was thirty-seven. I'm saying, "There's no way I'm gonna be doing this when I'm 50. Right. You know, and and do you do want to progress? Uh, you know. Uh, evolve in your career a little bit more and, and become a boss. You know, you've seen the whole time I was a fireman, I was kind of watching 
bosses, like, you know, like, like a, as a parent, you know, like you, you take some of your mother, some of your father, some of your Uncle Peter, you know, like I saw some of the bosses and I says, I would never be like that guy. I would try to be more like, like this guy. So, you know, you're kind of, kind of building your own model of what you think a boss, a boss should be. And this kind of one or two ways you can go in, in the fire department when you're talking about getting promoted. <clears throat> like some guys like to stay, you know, and they're, and they're good at what they, what they do. And, but they just, they don't want to ever really, they just don't ever want to, uh, assume the responsibility, but you can you can lament the way the job is going and complain about the way things are, and stay where you are, or you can kind of leave your comfort zone, move up the rank, live out of the trunk of your car for a couple of years, work work into a different firehouse every every day for two years, and and then you you get to be the guy that makes a decision about how the fire yeah. department goes. I I mean I did see things I didn't like either and I wanted them to change you know and I, I could, couldn't do it in the fireman's rank you know and like Danny said I, I worked with bosses and covering bosses that I didn't like the way they operated yeah. you know and I didn't like working under people like that who I didn't think they knew what they were doing or really cared or passionate you know and all those things you know motivated me and yeah like I mean I, and I didn't want to clean bathrooms anymore. <laughs> you know, I was <laughs> I was sick of cleaning bathrooms. <laughs> Who were some of the bosses that you really emulated? The guys you looked. Well, up I had to. this guy uh, Jack Maine, who's called Wacky Jack, and uh, he was my lieutenant in Forty Five Engine. And when I got on in Seventy Eight, he probably had at least fifteen years on the job, and he'd been a fireman in Thirty One Truck during the heyday. He was in TCU 712, then he was in Rescue 3, and he was like, this guy was like the epitome of old school. Never wore a mask. Not permitted. You know, like, he'd give me shit for putting on a mask, you know. I never even saw him close his coat. And, I mean, he was fearless. He was as tough as, like, like the guys, we, we, you know, we've been talking about. I mean, I never saw him back down without a mask. I mean, I remember... He says, come on, try it without the mask. Try it without the mask. And we're crawling in. You know, I have the nozzle. It's, it's a new law tenement. Like, things roar, an occupied building. And he's just going in, you know, and I'm doing it, and I'm doing it. I'm like, fuck it, hold on. And I had to put my face <laughs> Just get it. You know, but, I, but I, I started studying that and trying to understand why could he do it, you know. And, um, you know, part of that had to do with, like, the ventilation was so coordinated and important back then. And I remember being in that room, and then as, as he was crawling into that room and the hose was coming in, smash, there goes all the windows, you know. Like, and then that made it breathable for him, you know. But, uh, I, you know, I admired his toughness, and I really liked him because he didn't, he didn't care what anybody else thought. Like, he had his principles, and he'd get into fights with guys. You know, there was always uh, friction between the engine and the truck. I know some of the guys here know what I'm talking about. But back then, it was really big because, you know, the truck had only been there for a few years in 45. And, and it was very, you know, like at that time, the engine was like, you know, the Boy Scouts and the truck was, you know, the swine. Like, that's what they called them. <laughs> and, you know, and guys in the truck would give, like, Jack Maine such a hard time because he was such a hard charger. And he was old, you know, older than old. And he just, he stuck to what he believed was right, you know, and, and he had good solid principle so I admired that in the guy um, and then like like I was talking about Leo before Leo for Cassie to World War II just you know 
he was just the opposite. He went. He just learned. He knew how to go with the flow, and always had. A, he had like smile wrinkles, because he was always smiling, and I never had like. And everybody loved him, and I, I never was able to fully develop that skill. But but I admired him that like as far as management, like he always knew how to get along with everybody and uh, people. He didn't have to make anybody do anything. They wanted to do it for him. So, you know, I admired that, that too. We had in, uh, when I got to 108, there was like a, uh, a 120 connection there, you know, your place, yeah. all our offices, all of them, all of them were all 120 warriors guys. Sal Russo, he just passed last year. Uh, he was a captain. He was old school you know, uh, old-fashioned Italian tough guy, uh, John Gavigan. Mm -hmm. The guys told me he says he was, he was a little, a little grouchy sometimes. He said he'd, he'd be getting yelled at for the same thing he was yelling at his as kids for. <laughs> but they says pure truck officer, nobody better than him. And uh, Bobby Sheriff, Bobby Sheriff was the perfect, like he was a great fire officer and he took care of the guys and he was kind of like a fun, fun guy to work with. No matter what happened in the firehouse. He he didn't know. He didn't want to know. Is everybody okay? And he was he was really uh, really cool. Gavigan, the same thing. We had a job one day in the projects, and I had a mask. And whatever reason, he didn't. So I said, well, "How the hell is this guy <laughs> alive in here without a mask?" So I'll, I'll spit out my take off my mask. I'm like, "Well, what the hell am I carrying it for?" Since so I put it back on, so I said something to him after. I was like, "Lou, how do you how do you do it, man? How do you do it?" Well, you're you're humping couches and pulling ceilings and he's he's just basically just trying to stay alive but he <laughs> used to he used to say <laughs> that he said Dennis he go like this he goes let me tell you something he goes you get your nose this close to the ground he goes not this close to the ground he goes this close to the ground he goes there's air <laughs> but he was old school not doing anything else <laughs> old school old school uh tough guy that's great continuing that in that realm what were some of the challenges that you initially encountered as company officers well, I, I mean, I was sort of young, uh, for one thing, right? So I came on at 21. I had 10 years. I was only 31, um, and I looked very young. And uh, so that, that was a challenge. Um, you know, and I think flips was like like a week. It's <laughs> 30 days. We oh, did. was it that long? I don't know. Yeah. It, didn't see, it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of, lot of preparation back then. Yeah. I mean, I remember, like, we had, like, a lot of guys in the school from other cities, you know, so they were, it was very basic to, you know, like, I mean, I remember having a class about roof operations. This is a bulkhead. This is a scuttle, you know, so there wasn't a lot of management. I don't know if you had that. I would but, say, because uh, I, we talked about this before. I said that the first 15 years I was on the fire department, I learned probably most of everything I learned with a cup of coffee or a, a beer in your hand. You know, you listen to the other guys and there's all sorts of uh, if you're the OV, you're brand new, you got five guys schooling you, telling you what you did, telling you what you did wrong, telling you what you could have done the next time, the engine guys are chiming in. Is You get all sorts of feedback. When you get promoted, you get none of it. Like, I remember it was the same same feeling like when we brought our son home from the hospital. It's like the officer, my first night tour, I worked in 250 engine, and the guy gave me a little uh, little rundown, and then he's going out the door, and I'm like, where, where are you going? You know, like this... There's, I've never worked when there was no boss, you know, like now all of a sudden you're it and you really aren't. You're really not prepared. No, I felt like I was just thrown into it. Yeah. And I would I say mean, like rapid transition you have to make, you, you know, I mean, like you say, like I remember my first tour was in 74 engine and my first run 
very first one was first due for a plane down in in in, uh, in the Hudson River, <laughs> and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I just came out of fucking South Bronx. I don't know, give me a vacant building, like what? <laughs> I mean, I was I, I felt a little overwhelmed, you know, uh, right? It's, plus, you know, I worked in a in a whole new borough, you know, so that, so I didn't even have the comfort of even knowing, like, you know, like you got on the rig when you're fireman, you know right away who's second due if you're first due. When you, when you talk I, I got about on the rig, I didn't even know. Who was coming in from where? Like you, you know, talk about people. having confidence. I says I, I don't think I don't. I never felt less confident. You know, you just you have no idea. I remember the first run I, we went on, and uh, we were one forty seven and one fifty seven, and and uh, I never turned the siren on. Just like something's missing, you know, but you just don't. You know, you just yep, yep. you just you really you kind of really un, unprepared for it. So what I would do is I would call. Sheriff or Gabigan, and, and you'd pick their brains a little bit to try to get a little bit more, you know, of a working knowledge of what you're doing. But I, I can tell you, I could, I was probably working in a year to a year and a half as lieutenant before I started to think about some of the things that I wasn't even thinking of because you just, you just, you, you're, you're climbing just surviving, one day, and right? You're just you, trying to survive. You're sitting in the front honking a horn, and, <laughs> and it's a different position. You're traveling light, but your responsibilities. You don't you don't get the feedback of like coming going to a fire. You do something wrong. There's five guys there to say, hey, you know what? What did you do? What 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 were you thinking? You can make mistakes as a as an office as an officer unless maybe the engine officer says something to you, the truck officer says something to you. You know you're not you're not getting any any feedback. You could continue to do it do it wrong for a long time. So I had yeah. I had a lot of guys uh, that I would lean on. Uh, like mentors of mine that I would call, talk to, and, and seek out, seek out uh, information. Even guys, I would say, look, I've, I've never been a second due engine officer. When the first due stretching a line, and the third due stretching a second line, like what the hell do I do? You know, and you had all sorts of guys say, yeah, check out the back. You know, there's nobody in the back in this particular type of building. Check out the layout for the floor below in case you have to relieve the first due engine. You know, you start to pick guys' brains. But as far as confidence goes, and I'm saying. No, it, take, it took it took a while, and that's that's where I think was the most challenging thing when you first get promoted to lieutenant. You just you kind of just thrown to the wolves, really, and you kind of have to fend fend for yourself. You know, seek out whatever information you can on your own. But uh, there's really not a formal. I tried to do it in the rescues, you know, like set up like an office of development, but it's just it's it's tough to get anything airborne. But that was that was a challenge for me. When uh, when I was in school, though, I do remember uh, Jerry O'Donnell, who was like a big figure. He was the commissioner's uh, executive assistant. He was from 147. And uh, he came in and he said, I, I know you're not going to believe this. He goes, but one day, walking in as a lieutenant is going to feel as comfortable as like those old pair of slippers you put on your feet, you know, when you get out of bed. And it was true. It was just like the point was, you know, it takes a while to break in. Um, Something that helped me, which I always appreciated, was in some places, like a senior guy would come up to you and like make you feel welcome. Like some places were a class act, right? In other places, they disappear, you know, right? Five guys, you wouldn't even yeah. know where they were. And in some places, you know, these guys would come up to you and they'd talk to you, you know, and I'd start picking their brains. Like, what do you do around here? How's it going? You know, what, what's, you know, I'm like from a rear mount. Now I'm in a tower ladder for the first time in my life, you know. Um, all that kind of stuff was uh, really helpful. But, I mean, yeah, I didn't have a lot of people. Uh, 
older offices that I really called up like, like you do, and I probably should have done that more, yeah. you know. But, uh, I mean, when you think about the system of covering that a guy is thrown into a whole new area, like how much do we train on and they teach you like about familiarity, right? Know your positions, know your tools, know your people, know everything. And when you're a covering officer, you don't know anything. Right. <laughs> like you're thrown in, you don't even know. Like I, I wouldn't even know some days if like a guy wasn't even on the truck. <laughs> <laughs> like you had five man engine, you had four man engines, you know, like, you know, so it, it was it was a challenge, uh, but I guess it's unavoidable. One, one um, thing that's a challenge, especially for younger guys, and I, m- I remember this, you know, thinking back, is uh, like hold, holding a drill. You know, you're going to go into a, a firehouse, especially if you're a young guy, and you go into a, a, a senior place uh, with some, you know, some heavy hitters, and now you want to you want to hold the drill, and sometimes, especially like in a rescue company, the five guys working all know more than he, he does because some of the officers never worked in you know the way they're, they're doing it today. So for a guy to go in as an officer and hold hold an effective drill, I think that's that's uh, that's that's kind of a tough thing, sure. tough thing to do when you walk in because I stayed in. I basically worked in three firehouses my whole career, so I I stayed around like-minded guys. But some places you're going to go, and there's some senior guys who are not interested in drilling on a mask tonight, you know. So having holding an effective drill could be a challenge for a young a young boss. Absolutely. What were some of the positive aspects of being a boss? Well, I felt like um, when you gained uh, the respect and trust the guys who worked with you. I mean, that was pretty rewarding, you know, when you were able to, like, effectively um, do your job at the fire, effectively train the guys, know that they knew what they were supposed to be doing, that they, they counted on you, um, you know, just, uh, yeah, being, I think, being I productive. I think that, that uh, one of the things you uh, – did you, did you finish? I mean, yeah, go ahead. Cut you off. That, uh, again, it's, it's kind of – you know, you have to have confidence, but you want to kind of – check your ego and as if what one of the most rewarding things I think is when you train a guy that does a good job you heard he did a good job at a job that you weren't at and you don't need that hey you know uh Dan that's your guy you you, you taught him right knowing that you can you can help guys become better firemen and I don't that was one of the more rewarding things that now you're you're effectively if you're a good roof man you're a good irons man you know when you're working you're a good irons man, but if you're training guys to be good, and then you hear your crew did yeah. did a good job, like Sheriff used to say that all the time, and I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. He says, "Are oh, you guys make me look good?" I'm like, what are you talking about? But then when you become an officer and your guys do a nice job, and you get you know you get a good like an attaboy from from the chief, that if you know that you can you can affect guys' careers where they're they're going to be better because you train, like they said, the effective. Like a good coach is a guy who trains guys who become better than him. You know, that if you if you can really not not have an ego and say, yeah, I, I can train these guys and, and they're better than me or become a captain now where you pick the guys who train the guys. You know, it's just you're, the, the feedback is not as immediately rewarding. Like nobody's, nobody's patting you on the back and telling you you did a great job. But if you know you put together a good unit, I think that was one of the more, I say as an officer, that might be, that might be yeah, what I found training. the most rewarding thing. That you know your guys like I'm. I don't work there anymore. And every now and then you hear something from a guy that says, "Oh, you know, you showed us this, or you know, you, you taught us that." And we still, you know, your name comes up when they're talking about a certain incident. That's that's rewarding enough, I think. I think. 
Yeah, right. yeah. That's what I. That was one thing I missed working in the rescue is no junior guys, like no training guys. You know, getting probies. And like I, I like that because you could start somebody off on the right foot. Sure. You know, and yeah, and it's like Danny said. I mean, I'll go back to old Christmas parties and his guys there, and I said, remember, you know, and I remember stuff that you know that was helpful to them and tell you that, and that's very, that's pretty rewarding. Yeah. Fantastic. We're going to shift gears a little. As you're aware, Leadership Under Fire devotes considerable attention to human performance in high-risk settings. Given your incredible careers and considerable experience, I'd like to explore a couple of human performance themes. Can you reflect on a particularly challenging or complex fire where you operated under pressure and were humbled? Yeah. You want to go first or you want me to go first? I, I, I will, actually. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, had, I had the... Uh, the Black Sunday, the Jerome Street fire, on uh, on uh, a Black Black Sunday, we lost a kid from uh, 103, uh, Richie Scafani, and yeah, I, I had 2005. I had 25 years. I was an officer for 10 years. I was an officer in a rescue for five years. You know, you're saying you're feeling pretty confident, and then we were in a situation where nothing worked. Like we were trying to get this fellow out of a basement. And it's just everything that you knew, everything you relied on, the conditions, everything was against uh, us facilitating what we had to do. And I was, I tell everybody, man, I was, I was humbled. You know, I was, I was really, I was really humbled. So, you know, when you get fires like that, <clears throat> you know, you try to move on, uh, learn from it, you know, and uh, hopefully, you know, you, you'll be in a better position to help somebody the next time. They set up this, uh, Mickey Conboy and Phil Ruvalo, they, they put together that the fireman down, which is really at the, at the heart of this. And these fires where we take, uh, you take particularly difficult fires, generally with a, a fireman, fireman fatality. And if you, if you do it first person account, it's, uh, it's a critique. It's not a second guess. And we try, we try to get everything as much as, as we can out of it. So that was probably it, it for me. Uh, that was that was a, a day I was really just humbled, you know. It said nothing. It seemed like nothing was working, and uh, you know you come out of it and you say you question like, this is uh, like if if you can even do this, but um, that was uh, yeah. And you, I think like anything else, you know, you take these take these challenges, you you move forward from it. You know, uh, I had another one just before I retired, and uh, Lieutenant Ambellis got uh, got killed in in uh, ladder one nineteen. <laughs> up in Williamsburg. And at this point, I was 10 years older. I took what I learned from the first one is I took more of a backseat. I let the guys operate more. I kind of got them whatever equipment they needed and stayed out of their way. And then uh, and we talked about it. You know, when you see guys are upset over fires like this because they're life-changing. You know, I remember it was 5 o'clock in the morning. We sat around upstairs, and we says, hey, you know, we, uh, we take these fires, and, and we try to learn what we can from them. But we hang a hat on we did our very best, you know. That's and that's, you know, what's all that's all we can do in any of these fires. You just you just do the best you can, and that's probably what I took took from uh, from that fire. You know, I mean, I have a, a couple of incidents like that, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't even find what to call these mistakes for me or whatever it was, but I mean. Like I've learned that mistakes is like is, is natural part of the job as smoke, you know. I think that's really important to understand. 
And I, and I once heard this, and it's so true. There's only one guy who doesn't make mistakes on the job. And it's the guy who like does absolutely nothing. Yeah. But if you're out there giving it your best, you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes. And I just think it's really important, really, really to really believe that, you know. And like, I mean, I had a couple, you know, the thing that really sort of blew my mind was, <laughs> I mean, I was over 30 years on a job, and I was in rescue, you know, and we had a first do first do fire. Uh, I mean, I, I won't get into all the firefighting details. I don't know if it really matters, but let's just say it was a two-story building, a fire in the rear, and we get in, go up. To, it's like 11 o'clock at night, 11.30 at night. I run up to the second floor where the bedrooms are. It's a private home, and fire's out in the back on a deck, you know, just and the house was full. Smoke was coming into the house just to make sure. No big thing, you know, and it was like, like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong at once. Like somebody did an improper venting, the line was coming, the guy stretching the, uh, the control man had never worked a day in an engine in his life. He just transferred in from a, a truck to this engine. It was, the guys were telling me out in the street it was a pile of spaghetti. You know, I got to the top of the stairs with another guy and, and, and basically the windows broke, guy vented in the front. The bottom of the stair was at the back of the building where the fire was and it just it was just like a natural flu, came right up. We just started to hop at the stairs, was a bathroom, we just started a search in there, because I couldn't see going around. And I never felt heat like this in my life. Like this is like with 32 years on the job, right? And like, I'm pinned to the floor, pinned. I'd never experienced heat. I have a hood, the whole nine, you know? And I'm like, have my hair, hands even over my ears on top of the, the hood and everything. And I also have my flaps down because that's what I, they were always down because my helmet was so loose. And, and uh, anyway, I'm on the radio. I'm talking to my the, uh, guy downstairs. One of my guys is downstairs. He goes, he goes, I know you're down here. The line's coming. The line's coming. You know, hang in there. So anyway, it was, uh, I couldn't even get the door to the bathroom shut. There was stuff on the floor. And you know, it was like it was sort of traumatizing to me because I had another guy with me and he was trying to jump out the window. And it was the third, second floor, but there was a sunken driveway. It would have been three stories. And I'm telling you, you couldn't even stand up without getting burnt, let alone take every, you know, take the window. And, and, and they said water was coming, water was coming. I got on the ground flat and I held, I held this guy down. I just, I didn't think we should go out the window, you know. Um, that was my choice, you know. And then, you know, after like 20, 30 seconds, the temperature dropped, the line came up, and, you know, they put the fire out. Um, but that really shook me up because, uh, like, I didn't foresee, like, everything that could have happened. And to be honest with you, I might have been a little overconfident at that point, the 30-plus in the rescue, you know. And, but sometimes you can't foresee everything, you know. Uh, and tactically, I, you know, I mean, I don't know what I did wrong. I went up, it, was, it wasn't even fire in the building yet. But, but the point was, it was like, this is sometimes much bigger than me. Like, you can't always foresee, you know. And I had a similar thing where uh, I went out a window. I jumped out a window. Um, Hopkinson Avenue and Atlanta Brownstone. Um, with water operating, right? Fire on the parlor floor, the line was moving down the hallway. I went to the left to the uh, 
I'm in a truck into the living room. All the way in the back, there's a bedroom. I'm searching the bed, and there was gasoline all over the place. All this gasoline lights up. And I just, this is before bunker gear, and I just crashed through the glass and rolled out. And, you know, it was like, it was just pure dumb luck that I was okay because there was a setback roof, right? So I fell about a foot. And, I mean, there could have been bars on the window being a setback, which there weren't. There could have been a fire escape gate, which would have been no time to take. Right, like I didn't secure a secondary means of egress, right? You know, I didn't make good calls. It was uh, early morning. Um, you know, it could have been an upper floor, and it was a single pane glass, which I don't think I just could have rolled through a thermal pane window. You know, and the funny thing was Jerry Quinn from your, <laughs> I think you were one seventy six. I roll out of this window, and there's a guy from one seventy six on the setback roof of a Halligan like this. And he's about, and I roll out, and this guy's like, whoa! <laughs> and, and it was like Hollywood, like the flames came out over my head, the whole thing, it was like, and I'm like, you know, uh, sometimes it's just a lot of dumb luck, too. Yeah. But I don't think you can 100% prepare for every possible scenario. I mean, I think things, you can't be 100% yourself every day, every, I mean, I always tried to prepare to the best I could, make sure I ate, make sure I rested the night before. You know, as I got older, I tried not to come to work hungover anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, I was hydrated, I was always drinking water, but you know, there's, there's a certain amount of chance in the fire service. Um, right? Everybody Don't will you tell think? you it's, it's humbling. You know, if you haven't been humbled, you just haven't been humbled yet. You know, so it'll, it'll come. And to talk about the role of, of operational stress on a human being. Like if we were to ask you how long do you think you were on that staircase, you know, trying to get uh, Scofani out of there, you'd pr probably have little to no idea. I would have said it was about an, about an hour. It was, I think it was about 11 minutes. And now these are some of the indicators of really severe stress. Uh, and that goes to part of what LUF is really trying to dig into and understand. We probably generate a stress package, the equivalent of special operators in the military. Um, we are never off deployment. Um, we've been wearing whoop devices, which are heart rate monitors. Uh, we generate heart rate values that are nothing less than extraordinary. Uh, and to think of the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Another part of being humbled sometimes is that the initial information that we receive doesn't then match up with what you respond to. This was a lesson that Jason and I learned really the hard way. When Dr. Metcalf came to the, from Columbia University, came to the firehouse the first time, and we were trying to teach her this is an engine, this is a truck. And after a while she said, well, how do you receive your calls? And we brought her into the house watch and she laughed that we had this ancient antiquated, you know, computer system running on 1970s technology. The importance of getting good information right from the start. We didn't really understand it, and that we really understood it when Dr. Andy Morgan, who works with the Tier 1 units, explained some of the highest stress values that they see are in the moments before they blow a door in a two- or four-man uh, room assault. We oftentimes end up with her, you know, horrendous information, oftentimes a street corner, and we show up then with little to no information and then have to act and have to piece this thing together under extraordinary stress. Dr. Morgan would tell us that some of the, the big differences between us and like SEALs is that 
they have so many resources identifying the target set before they get there, they have a pretty good idea what they're doing. You respond out to these boxes, you have little to no information, which drives up the stress, and then you show up, and oftentimes there's a misalignment. I had the Park Avenue gas explosion, uh, two tenements leveled. When I turned the rig on to uh, 116th Street, I was still looking for Metro North rail cars hanging over the side. That's what I thought this was. Mm. I had the, uh, the train fire on uh, Lenox Avenue and 110. We've gone to a million and one trash fires. No one in, in, in his job has ever seen entire train cars on fire. It's a complete misalignment that I still have trouble piecing it together. Um, what we don't understand is just how stressed we are. I think over time, as we do, we can then provide leaders uh, with information to allow us to, to better train, to better equip, uh, to better manage the stresses that we face because the, that stress package is extraordinary. Let's move on to our next question. What were some of the tells and signs and symptoms that each of you found to be reliable signals that an incident commander or chief officer was being impacted negatively by operational stress? Well, um, well when I was in the rescue, that was more something we paid attention to yeah. about the chiefs, yeah. right? When you're in a truck, you don't really you know, pay attention to that. But in, in the rescue, I'm sure everything I'm going to say is exactly what Danny did. I'm sure, like, looked at the riding list at the beginning of Utah, you saw who the chiefs were. And, you know, having been, we've both been around quite a while, we knew most of the chiefs. And we knew who was, you know, A, B, and C, like who, what, what their level was. So that was one thing. So I would already be prepared. Like, if I was going into battalion, you know, X and Chief Y was working, and I knew he had nine years on the job, which is possible for a chief just coming out of a very inactive area. I'm like, okay, you know, I got to pay attention to what's going on here. And, um, <clears throat> you know, pick up a lot about what you're hearing on the radio, of course, you know, uh, the tones and everything on the radio. I'd listen to that. And then, you know, I'd go up to the chief. And, uh, I mean, you could tell a lot just by looking at him in front of the building, right? Before you had yeah, tone of voice. Before you, you even know, like spoke to him, though. You get you get the guy's tone of voice, and sometimes, uh, well, you know what I, my my approach to so when I when I responded in, you know, not that the job's getting younger, but when I worked with Downey and Artie Connolly, that was old old time. It's like they used to report in and ask the chief, "What do you need?" And I and I never did that. I never did that. Well, I, would, I would go in. Suggest it to them. Yeah, I would see what was going on, see where we want, we, if we should operate, where, where we should operate, whether or not we should even be operating, and then I would make that suggestion. Yep. And you know what I do? Some of these, the chiefs, to save face, because I, I'd see, you know, after a while that if there were other people around, some of the chiefs, their pride or ego, they didn't want you coming in sort of telling them. So I would actually get them away from the command post to group, and I would, and I'd say, Chief, you know, like, what's going on exposure to, is there anybody on, you know, is, do you know if, is anyone on the top floor? And then you'd look, they'd go, oh no, you know, and then, did you get that? But I always felt like if you did it, like it was even just the way I, like I'd correct a fireman. Like I never did anything in front of other people. And uh, and this way he saved face, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that was part of our job. Uh, as the rescue company we, used to be proactive like that. We were older guys, you know, so... That was another thing. Sometimes when you're coming in, I, I remember some chiefs, you'd, you'd get in and say, Chief, you know, uh, 
And he goes, oh, okay, he goes, uh, I got so-and-so's on the top floor, we got water, the search is over here in negative, we got this. Like, they would kind of, like, run their mental checklist, like, through you, because you're an older guy, and, and uh, just to make sure they, like, they'd sort of verbalize and, and have their uh, bases covered. But I, I just, when I would see an incident command, it says, like, this guy's trying to, he's trying to track 10 things at once. He's like the guy... He's spinning 10 plates, you know, between searches, occupancy, water, you know, second do, fast truck. So if I come in as a rescue company and say, you know, chief, what do you want me to do? You just, you're giving him another task, basically. Mm -hmm. So I would, in effect, try to take one from him, say no, something where, you know, you would know more effectively where the rescue should be operating, or not at all, you know. If you see something, you know, if, if it, everything's under control and you don't need you, you know, you could, you could suggest that too. But I, I could, t I would say that, I would say the Chiefs are really, really pretty good, very good. You know, I never really s saw a guy come in and, and lose it. You know, I really. I never saw anyone lose. I don't think I could say. I just that, saw inexperience. <clears throat> yeah, the, as the guys Chiefs that needed assistance you know? never came in and lost. And these these guys are bright. You know, like they're they're all they're all bright guys. So they know how to they know how to delegate. They know how to you know use their resources. So, I I would say. I don't think I ever really had to. I never really came in and like had to calm a guy down. Uh, you know, it was no. I never saw that. No, these did. They were all. I mean, they were especially where where I was. You know, I stayed in Brooklyn thirty five years. They were all. Uh, they were all pretty good. Sure. One thing that we found is that operating alone is an enormous uh, driver of stress, and like we've looked at engine chauffeurs. A position that we've kind of forgotten on this job, mm. but also chiefs. They're the two people on this job that operate alone. And as far as chiefs are the modern day chiefs, what we task them with, we may be pushing the bounds of of of, of legitimate performance. Um, you by yourself. You spoke about they're thinking about this that. You get to a, a, a ten seventy seven a project fire. I mean, how many things are on that chief's mind? He might have 10 floors that need to be searched. Um, we don't understand, you know, again, not having an understanding of human performance means we task people with more responsibilities than they should have. Like in today's fire department, if you're an engine, a truck boss at a 1077, we ask you to do about 15 things. I think in today's world, uh, having guys who understand performance and helping that chief when they start to go left of center will be an enormous benefit. And certainly having two of you guys on the fire department today would be an enormous benefit. Is that why they added so many chiefs? Because it seems like now there's like a floor above chief and water resource officer. Sectors, also sectors What's now. that? Sectors, they have. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, that, that was sort of coming when I was getting out. But it seems like they've sort of, I don't know if that's more complicated or less. <laughs> and that's a debate within the fire department. Um, Is it now? Well, your understanding of human performance tells you that less is more. Mm. You know, give them less to do because under extreme complexity, you don't have the ability cognitively to handle all those plates, like you said, especially when, when they're making real critical decisions. Um, but that understanding will come over time. But the understanding that can also help people. And I'm going to get to the engine show for a little while. Uh, but understanding when chiefs can go uh, left of center is a really important uh, understanding to have. Well, if you talk about the lieutenants and the chiefs, it's even less like for support. You know, what did you do wrong? Who do you talk to? 
you know, even just, you know, like the, the support group of the firehouse, the kitchen, and that's, I mean, after 9-11, uh, a friend of mine, we went to 108 in 1982 on the same order. He was a, a first division commander, I think. And he said, just once he'd like to walk in the firehouse and have somebody hit him with a pail of water. You know, like he walks in, everybody shuts up. It's just because, you know, you're the, you're the chief, so you don't have that. You don't have that support group, you know, to have, you know, uh, people kidded around with or just, you know, tell you, tell you you did something wrong. So it's definitely t tougher, tougher for them. I remember chiefs telling me, uh, like when I was in 120, the thing that helped chiefs the most, they used to tell me was like, if I could just get clear, brief, concise, accurate reports. I think I think that's that would really help a chief a lot if, if there was a lot of training and I don't know what the job's doing anymore but I mean I think the messages that come over the radio are like so important to what the chief and how he responds in the street I mean if it's if it's too you know too long too too inaccurate too emotional like I believe that would be like a good way to angle you know good angle for helping the chiefs is getting good clear information sure and it also didn't help that the old-time chiefs uh, had like 30-year guys driving them, yeah. which is essentially like having a backup chief. Yeah. Uh, that's something of a lost yeah, art today. A, he was tremendous as, as an aide. He's a great He's unbelievable. <laughs> Four foot of Brooklyn. We have fire out 37 windows. <laughs> right in the vacant. No, he was good, though, because he used to kid the guys in the engine. He did dirty three years, and he did one year in the engine. And then 32 is, is an aide, but he was a great aide. And so he did he 44 to, years in the 4-4. 44, was it? Yep. He told, used to tell the guys, in all my year in the engine, I never saw <laughs> anything like that. But he would say, he would tell me, he says he'd have like an ABC uh, young battalion chief working. And he says he'd go up to him and he'd say, chief, frame building, fire out the windows, seven minutes, no water. What do you want to do? And then he'd go back to him. He says, chief, fire out the windows, 11 minutes. Free standard frame, no water. What do you want to do? You know, he would he would lean on the guy. But he was a he was a good aide. You know, but True. the four four the chiefs the four four chiefs were the I think head and shoulders above everybody. They were the best. The four four when I was there. Okay. We'll shift gears now. Uh, though you both retired before MPI was formally launched within the FDNY, you've both had some exposure to the FDNY's extensive effort to address human and mental performance in a more intentional fashion. Lieutenant Gordon, were there any practices that you adopted on your own that you believe helped you perform better under pressure? Yeah, yeah, I, had, I, I did a number of things. Um, <clears throat> well, I've had a meditation practice for years, and, and uh, I started that. I used to have anxiety, you know, I had anxiety, and I wasn't going to take any uh, pills or anything like that, and I heard about meditation. And uh, anyway, it was just like training with sort of sitting with things that are happening and not responding to it and just letting stuff pass. And uh, yeah, I think that gave me a calm demeanor. And I'm going to tell you the truth. When I was pinned on that floor, um, I refused to give a May Day because <laughs> they knew where I was. And, and I just said, just focus on your breath. I knew they were coming. They, you know. All the screaming and excitement in the world wouldn't have changed anything. I knew they were coming, and, you know, uh, honest to God, I was just breathing, saying to myself, breathe in, breathe out, just breathe, you know. And uh, I think that was that's a really, really, really helpful thing. And just, just staying um, fit, like, I'd always stretch. 
before I, I went to work. Like stretch out, get loose, get flexible. You know, um, that prepared me, get as best the best sleep I could, you know, because you might be up for 24 hours. I wouldn't go into the firehouse six o'clock starving because you might not eat till midnight. And I don't know about everybody, but like I get that low blood pressure, low, low blood sugar thing, and I'm just sort of loopy. So I ate, like I didn't come into work hungry. And, uh, and I drank water all the time, you know. Uh, and like those were some of the things that, that helped me manage. Um, I definitely believe they helped a lot, you yeah. know. I did, I, when you said that, I did the same. Like in the summertime, I tried to drop a few pounds you know, keep a little lighter, watch what you ate. Like when you drink on the real hot days, don't drink coffee. You know, you watch your caffeine on the, on the really hot days. And uh, yeah, I, I remember doing, doing doing the same, just trying to, you know, just try to stay in the best shape you could be in. And, and uh, you know, just, you know, just remember you're a professional and just try to do the best you could and be prepared. You know, I thought for stress, that was one of the best things you can do to, to reduce stress is just be ready. You know, like say, uh, like in the old days, you work with Downey, and like God help the guy that didn't know where the leak kit was on the rig with uh, with with Downey. So, if you have a stressful situation, we had a, a very good friend of mine went off an aerial ladder when I was uh, a fireman in rescue too, and I had just gotten there. And we got there, he had just fallen off a ladder. He fell three floors, and uh, you know now you're looking for equipment. If you don't, if you're fumbling for equipment or if you're fumbling for a key for the compartment, you're not sure which compartment it's in. That's all. All that stuff is going to add, add to stress. So it's a stressful situation. It's a stressful job. You know, it's a given. But you can do things to to reduce that stress just really by being prepared. Like if you have prepared. a if you have a test tomorrow that you you studied and you you know what they're going to ask you, you go in and you calm. And if you're unprepared and you're completely, uh, you know, just not ready to take it, that's when. That's when you're nervous. So anything that you could do to be as prepared as you could, you know, make sure. Like I came in, Gavigan did that. When he came in, no matter what, I never walked in the back door of the firehouse. Like you put the car in a lot and the door would be open. I would never go in the back. I said, because if I go in the back, you're going to sit down, you're going to have a cup of coffee. Next thing you know, you're going to get a run and then you're going to be looking for your equipment. So I always walked in the front door, no matter what. And I took my gear, I put my gear on the rig, ready to rig, make sure I had everything, because invariably you're going to be, you're sitting, you're bullshitting, and the next thing you know, you got to run, and it's five after six, and you're on the rig. So just be, being prepared, actually, was one of the things you could do, really, to, to reduce stress. Definitely. Prep I even have that written down here, preparation. Yeah. And, and another thing, like, um, if I just had, like, a fight with my wife at that time, or, like, there was turmoil. Something was very upsetting to me. And I'm going to work, you know, like she just hung up the phone, you had a screaming fight, whatever, you know, like I had to sort of let that go um, when I walked into the firehouse. Like for me, I thought it was really unhealthy um, to bring in outside issues like that yeah. when you're trying to work. And it was dangerous, you know, like really dangerous because that stuff can really suck you in like a family, you know. And like my, my saying back then was like when you get to the firehouse, your personal stuff stays in the parking lot, you know. And it's not so easy to do all the time, but if not, then get it, you know, straightened out as fast as possible and get back to work. You know. Lieutenant Murphy, it's my understanding that you were diligent about maintaining a functional map of Brooklyn. Well, that just comes from being a mental patient, really. <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, I just like to, I mean, the guy, you kind of prided yourself on knowing 
known where every, everything was. And it's, I used to say Rescue Ford, is, re, chauffeur Rescue Ford has got to be the most difficult job in the whole fire department. You couldn't have memorized Queens like no, that? No, no way. It don't Bru even make sense. Brooklyn, it's easier. There's grids, and it's a little easier to remember. But I studied it. I mean, I, I did. We had, when I first got there, and, and there's like a, like a, you know, the oil and uh, rig supply closet. And on the, on the inside of it, there was a, a map of Brooklyn with just like the major thoroughfares, like Eastern Parkway, Rockway Parkway, Albany Avenue, uh, stuff, uh, you know, just the main the main drags. So, but if we were sitting anywhere, we were sitting on the rig. Guys are shopping for the meal. We're just sitting in traffic, and a box would come in. I'd start planning like a route sure. to come in because we're on we're in East New York on a new lots in Hegeman, and a job comes in on. 12th Avenue and 48th Street. Like, how are you going to get across from here to there? So, you know, it's it's a lot on the chauffeur, and, and we had really good chauffeurs, too. But uh, it's a, you know, we, it doesn't matter how effective we are if we can't, if we can't get there. So I always just kind of did that. And then, uh, like, the little odd streets, you know, you would always kind of, when they would come in, just so you had a little bit of an idea where uh, where you're going. But that's just one, you know, you just you try to be the best at, at uh at your job, and it's—I mean, I know guys told me in a certain restaurant. I won't mention who who he was, but they're saying that the chauffeur's having trouble, and he looks at the office. He's like, "Where is that?" He goes, "I don't know." He goes, "Well, get the map. You know, let's, let's start looking. You know, this is what it, we kind of have to get there." So I think it's just part of again preparation, and you know, if you know where you're going, and especially in Brooklyn, there's like a lot of hidden little streets and avenues and the entrance to prospect expressway it's like a, a hidden little block you know so it's uh you know it's just part of being professional just kind of knowing knowing your district knowing where you are and and how to get there it just it would take a little stress off the chauffeur actually sure very reminiscent of the uh the london cab drivers um, well danny drove a cab before he got on <laughs> no i didn't no i didn't <laughs> Well, you were joking when you told me that? No, I, I might have been drinking when I told you that. <laughs> okay. Well, Who's well, the London cab driver? Well, that's just, uh, <laughs> they study them. And, and those they have that, to it's know a three-year yeah. process called the knowledge. And those that pass the test, and they, they actually measure the size of their hippocampus and actually expands. Um, your brain changes. Uh, and, and we're constantly changing and learning. Uh, but that's, your example is one of professionalism. But it is a nice analogy to see how the brains change. It would be a phenomenal study to take a young group of firefighters and put them in a functional MRI and see over time hmm. how their brains actually change uh, because of what we're subjected to, what we need to know. Uh, but you're an example of just sure, you know, being professional. Well, we talk about it when we talk. It's, just, it's all in a useless information file now. <laughs> you know, where Burnett Place is, it doesn't really make any difference now, <laughs> now that right? you're... Uh, Let's move on now to the bunker gear issue. How did you feel when, when bunker gear came on board? Because you had spent almost half your careers uh, operating blue jeans. How did you feel about bunker gear coming in? I, well, so when it came, uh, I was in 120, and um, I actually was on vacation when they issued it. I'll never forget this. And, uh, but the guys, most of the guys had it. And we were going down uh, Rockaway Avenue one day, coming back from a... A, uh, a run right near the tin house and we see smoke coming out of the rear of a frame top floor of a frame no box yet we just you know a verbal like just literally cruising onto it so call it in get off the rig we go upstairs <clears throat> into the rear and it's roaring in the rear of um 
like a three-story frame, right? So my irons man and uh, the can man both have bunker gear. And I'm in that ratty 14-year-old turnout coat <laughs> because, you know, we had to pay for our stuff, right, into bunker gear. So, you know, nobody ever replaced anything. You know, like it was – I used to bring it to the shoe repair guy, and he'd sew up all the rips and tears. And, I mean, this thing was like – I probably was better without a coat. <laughs> anyway, and I'll never forget it. And I – I got in first, and I'm crawling in, you know, and I go as far as I can get in that stuff. And these guys, after can, just like, it, was, it wasn't even a conscious thing just from, because he wasn't feeling the heat. It wasn't even like from a conscious decision on his part. And he just went all the way up to the fire and started using the can. And I'm like, I got to get that stuff. Because <laughs> I'm not sitting back here watching these guys. But, but uh, as t I mean... I mean, like everything in the fire department, you know, we're resistant to change. Uh, you know, um, it has its, listen, this is a, I mean, Danny and I have talked about this a lot. It has its pros and cons, like yeah. a lot of things. You know, I don't think it's uh, the best. I don't know if it's the best answer. I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff happen to guys that probably wouldn't have happened maybe without bunker gear, in my experience. Uh, I mean, let alone just, and I was saying this before, like I really noticed when I thought about it, like there was a real spike in orthopedic injuries um, after uh, bunker gear. Like, because as an officer, you're always doing CD72s. And, you know, when you're in a company that's running a lot and doing a lot of stairs, because we have the projects and all that, you know, and I was seeing like so many knee injuries coming and shoulder injuries, like all this stuff that I don't remember, you know, happening. And, um, and, you know, I'm not the first one to say this. Uh, you know, guys would say, well, you know, if they would have had bunker gear back then, you know, maybe they would have gotten burnt in that flashover or whatever. And if they wouldn't have bunker gear, they might not have been in that spot to begin with. So this is, this is a great uh, controversy. I, I think in general, there's just way too much equipment. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 160 pounds. You know, Danny's... 240. 170. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, we're wearing 80 pounds. Like, I'm already adding 50% to my weight. And I'm doing this, you know, in my 50s. And it's like, it's just too hard. Like, like I felt like it detracted from my, even my ability as a boss. Like, like it, it took energy out of me. And, uh, it, like, I felt like when I was lighter, of course, I was younger. But <clears throat> I just felt like if I was lighter, I could work more efficiently and, uh, you know, like I think the old time is um, they didn't have the bunker gear. And, and I don't know when there were more burns uh, then or now or more line of duty deaths. I'm not sure. I'm sure you guys have probably checked it. But you know what they had? They had a strict adherence to tactics, like militant about it. Like the line went in. As soon as there was water, the windows were taken. Everybody's, you didn't have guys running into the building standing. Every, my bosses screamed at, like, everybody crawls. I learned to snake in, and we did that. Like, we were on our bellies when we didn't have, you know, have the mess. The ventilation was time. The roof man, you know, did his thing on the roof. We didn't have all this, all these crazy things about, you know, ventilation and when you vent, when you don't vent. It's like when they had water in the line, they, they took the windows. And, and anyway, I think all these things, um, helped add to the safety, you know, of, of the operation. Um, I think guys felt like they didn't have, they could be more almost reckless with bunker gear or not as concerned about getting burnt at times. I know I have. 
Um, so I don't I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I know we yeah, had I, a ch- I know we had to change something, but you know what? Most of the burns I saw when I was a fireman were like small burns. It was always the same stuff, right? Yeah. Back of your neck, your ears, your knees, pretty much. You know, one you of the know. things they always talk about in fire department, like, is a big thing, is situational awareness. Like, you know, you know, know where you are, know what the conditions are, know what, know what's the surroundings are, and like, I, th- I think the bunker gear like takes that away. You know, uh, I had. 15 years, I was in 108 and rescue two. And uh, I said, briefly, we had we had a job as a couple of floors <laughs> above, no engine in, the truck wasn't in yet. And two floors above, saw a woman in the window, I'm trying to force the door, and about a couple of minutes into it, I felt my arms burning through my coat. Like I'm saying, there's no way I would have been in this position, you know, with, uh, with the bunker gear. So, you know, I know, the old timers complained about it when I first got on about the mask, the mask. The same thing, complaints you hear about the bunker gear was the exact same argument you heard about the mask. It's going to get guys into places they're not going to be able to get out of. It's just they're not going to, you know, they're not familiar with it. It's going to, they're not aware of where they are. They're not aware of what the conditions are. And 30 years later, we have, obviously, we can operate well with masks. But so maybe it's just going to be, a couple generations that are going to have to work with bunker gear to realize, you know, how, how you have to operate. I know there's te- technology with sensors and heat sensors, but the first day <clears throat> when I get on, they used to say, yeah, the old guys say, you have no idea, you kids today, how easy, how easy it is. And I'm saying the guys that are coming on today have no idea how much harder the job is today than when we came on with the, with the bunker gear. And, the same thing, we were, I was in Rescue 2, of course, Downey's the boss. We get two jobs back-to-back by 233. One was on Howard and Chauncey, and in a couple of minutes' time, I'm out of gas. I'm 34 years old, and I'm completely out of gas. So we're, we're leaving, we're taking up. They say, hurry up, 210 just gave it 1075. 210's on the other, other side of Brooklyn, so I'm like... Thank God, I'm crawling, really. I'm in a rig, and I um, drink something and take a sh- Well, 210 relocated to 233. It's on Howard and Jefferson. It was six six blocks away. We get there. I was shot. I was shot. I was shot yeah. when we... I when mean, we, the gear really fatigued me. Overnight. Uh, it like, fatigued you very, the difference, very quickly. The difference in how long you can operate and then how long your troops can operate, it's just completely, completely changed. So there's probably really nobody anymore that worked without bunker gear. A couple guys, maybe. I worked, Jim. I was one of the last classes, so I did a little bit of it. Uh, but I've been, I'm now like the first generation who spent his entire career with motor. Yeah. It's a disaster. And then, you know, yeah. the hood came with the bunker gear. And I generally, I didn't, very few times I pulled my hood up, to be honest with you. I didn't like it. You know, I always grew up on a job with, with feeling your ears to register heat. And my bosses were like, I learned, you know, they, they, old timers, they didn't even wear gloves, you know. And they'd be crawling and they'd put their hand over their head. And it is dramatically different between floor and putting your hand, you know. And once I had that hood on and the heavy gloves and all that, it's like Danny said, the encapsulation, like yeah. you, you lose that that situational awareness. And, and uh, honestly, I, I don't think I pulled that hood up more than three or four times. You know, I just put my flaps down, but I'd like some, I wanted some skin exposed. I mean, yeah. it's not a freaking ent- NASA entry outfit. I mean, yes, the nozzle man, of course, guys on a line with water, the truck or the rescue where you're operating without water, 
maybe far away from water, right? You better really be able to register heat, you know, and I didn't find like I could use, the, well, I used a camera, the thermal imaging camera. Like I couldn't see that thing, <laughs> you know? I mean, I couldn't read that, that, what it said on the camera. It was just too small for me. I got promoted in 1995 and the bunker gear was, you know, had just come out. And uh, in the lieutenant school, there was a civilian, the guy yelled at me. I said, uh, he says, yeah, but how are you gonna, you know, the old timers, they yelled at me for keeping my flaps down. I said, uh, you know, you have to have some feeling to how, how hot it is. Yeah. And the guy yelled, he goes, he yelled at me like, uh, the human skin is not a, like, not a heat sensor or something like that. I'm like, I'm like, all right, but I'm not gonna tell those old guys that they're wrong. But I think somebody does. And, you know, we've talked to staff chiefs when we used to have the, uh, the give and take on Galvin, education day, talk to Galvin. We tell him. And I said, you know, we got a couple guys who got horrifically burned. They both had experience. It's just they're wearing bunker gear. And he said, we're not going backwards. Like, we're not we're not going to go backwards. But I know well, the guy. We can go sideways and, change, said, and change it. He did the same thing. He right? kept his Something hood down different. so he could feel, feel the heat. Right. But you, you see now, uh, we have guys who were hired, you know, post 9-11, some with 15 years or so, and they're showing long-term debilitating injuries. Oh, orthopedic? Everything. Yeah. They're broken. That's the why hips. I'm out. Jim, I think I'd still be working if we never switched to bunker. I went on all orthopedic. Knees, neck, and shoulder. Yeah. Uh, and back. Lower yeah. back. If I didn't drive, I, I couldn't be on this job. Um, and what the, you know, we're going to get into this in a little while, the, the intention of it, but how did you handle the summer with the with the heat and and the gear, the bunker gear. Sorry, Mike, can you finish the um, details about the second part? Oh, with uh, the boss? Well, which one? With uh, Downey. Oh, me and Rocky. Rocky was kind of his whipper boy, sort of. And we looked very much alike. <laughs> so I'm, much sit, more I'm sitting in the rig, and I remember holding the red solo cup of water. My hands are shaking. I have chills. Like on my body, my body's going into some kind of heat stroke or <laughs> I'm sitting there like this. My hands are shaking. I says, I can't stand up and down. He, of course, he gets on the radio and he goes, hey, floor above, get up here. We got to toss this apartment. And I'm like, I go, click. <laughs> <laughs> I turn my radio off. I says, Rocky, stick together, man. <laughs> says, he can't, he can't kill the two of us. <laughs> I said, nah, it's just, you, you can't, you can't stand up. But I didn't realize the pace. And now you just, you have to really, really slow, slow the pace down and say the bunker gear, it's just, it's just super, super going to cut down your operating time. And the amazing thing is it, the fire science guys tell us that, you know, fire gets to the point of chaos faster than ever before. Engines have never been slower through no fault of their own. We saddled them with all this stuff, reduced their manpower, run them through the roof, and they, we expect them to be fresh enough to make a push and stretch 12 lengths, you know, to the fifth floor of a new tenement. It just doesn't I was, work. When I was 50-something, I was watching, like, a guy go up to the roof up the aerial with um, bunker gear, mask, saw, and rope. And I'm like, how is this even possible? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, how, how effective is he when he gets there? Like, I mean... They're not. I don't, I don't even. I don't even understand that. I don't want to get on a get on a soapbox, but the change in the job from when I when I came on, it says was getting water to the fire as fast as you could. 
And I think we, we kind of got away from that. We're looking at venting. We're looking at, at uh, building vent profiles, which those old guys didn't know what it was. It was the engine stretches the line. The truck, God help the guy in the truck who steps on the line and doesn't help it go around a newel post and help him get the line in position. And when we were searching, we were searching in the apartment, we were searching for the fire. To save you, if you trip across a guy, it's his lucky day. But you're searching to you get the line to the fire and, and uh, get water to the fire as fast as you can. I said that That's to Galvin. Right. I says, why are they carrying a can in the truck for 100 years? I says, it's water. It's just try to get quick water on something. It says, you know, how many times you can knock, knock a room down before it's going to a good mattress, you know, a, a can will knock it down. And if you give it another 60 seconds, the room will, room will light up. But we sort of, we sort of got away from that. And instead of trying, like Freddie Gallagher, the captain of Rescue 2, we went there in 1974, his thing was, if you put the fire out, all the other problems go away. And we sort of, uh, we sort of got, kind of got away from that. You're trying to teach guys to operate safely in a fire environment instead of saying, just put the fire out. Right. You know, the other thing, the orthopedics, it says, I crawl because I'm just, I'm, I'm like a, not a graceful person. You know, and so when I'm falling, I'm falling from six feet. You know, you trip over a coffee table or a kid's, the kid's toys, you know, the million things you find in an apartment when you're searching. It says, first of all, they says, you're not going to find anybody standing at the kitchen sink when you're searching, searching a room standing up. So get on the floor. It says, but I crawl because I was like, I'm, I'm going to fall. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm clumsy. So the, I think guys are falling. I've seen guys crawl. falling down. They're, they're walking around with face pieces and you... You go down a flight of stairs, you know, because because you're not crawling. I crawl under guys' legs who are standing and rescue to get in the apartment. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> it's also amazing that we've been wearing this for 25 years, and there's no data set on how this impacts us in the moment and from a longitudinal standpoint. That that's astounding to me. I and mean, also economically, I don't think it's saving them money. I mean. Maybe we eliminate some burns, but all the other injuries, forcing early, your earlier retirements, huge yeah. pensions. I, I mean, I, pensions. I never I got know. that either. I was, I said, like, I remember talking to firemen, like, what do you care what it costs? I says, like, what, what, why, why were we concerned about what this? I said, what do you do if you smash your rig into an L pillar? I says, it's one point two million dollars. You're going to lose a vacation day. You're going to, you're going to get uh, lifted possibly, but you're going to get a new fire truck. You know, by, by the end of the day, it's a, it's a tool, you know. So I don't know if they really, when you think about the cost of what these rigs cost, it's just the, the rig they rescue two has, ah, it's got to be $1.2, $1.4 million. It's just like. I remember, Jimmy, when I was a fireman in a bunker, I don't know if this is accurate or just firehouse kitchen talk, but I remember them saying that they had to do something about the burns. And it was really about the medical leave. I don't think the bean counters are too worried about your health and fitness. But, you know, the medical leave was crazy back in the 70s and 80s with burns. Because yeah. that was the only, that was like a legitimate line of duty injury, you know. We're going to break for a moment and come back. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. We'll, we'll, okay. take, we'll take a break. Thanks for listening to part one of our first Leadership Under Fire virtual fireside chat. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss part two. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share it, and leave a comment. If you're interested in Leadership Under Fire events and publications, 
go to leadershipunderfire.com and join our newsletters. Be well. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.